In this episode, Todd Billings and I talk about death and dying. While the topic is a hard one, I think that you'll find the conversation beneficial. Welcome to Heaven and Earth. My name is Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined by Todd Billings, and we're here to talk about, well, the topic of death, which is not the most cheery thing probably at first glance, but I think it'll be interesting. Uh, Dr. Billings, Todd Billings has written a couple books on the topic, and he has a bit of a unique background that I think helps give a little bit of a background to why he might be uniquely qualified to write on it. Now, I could introduce you, but as we spoke earlier, I'd love for you to introduce yourself, Todd. Can you just kind of tell us maybe who you are, as brief or as long as you want, and some of your, your health background that might give insight into why you might be the person for the, for the books that you've written? Yeah, it's good to be with you, Wyatt. Um, I'm a dad, I'm a theologian um, in Western Michigan, um, and I've been, um, I wrote a number of books in um, theology when I was, you know, um, early in my career, and then when I was 39, I was diagnosed with an incurable blood cancer, and was, um, was married, am still married, um, and my kids were one and three at the time. Um, and so I wrote a book called Rejoicing in Lament, which was not simply a book about lament, but also about joy and rejoicing in God, um, even in the midst of sorrow, um, and also a kind of a rediscovery of biblical theology of lament and how our broken stories can find their place in God's bigger story. And so I've um, continued teaching at the seminary. I continue on chemotherapy, though a little bit lower dose. So I teach um, two thirds time at the seminary. Um, I've continued to write on some other things that interest me. I finished and published a book on the Lord's Supper and the gospel a couple of years ago that I had started before my diagnosis. Um, but especially in the last five or six years, the whole reality of mortality has um, been an important part of my experience. Like, how do I teach my kids about mortality if my kids are going to you know, perhaps lose their dad before they graduate from high school or things like that. Um, how do I teach them about mortality? And it also came from being a seminary professor and having a lot of students come back and say one of their biggest struggles in congregational ministry was dealing with all the deaths. Um, a number of them, especially people who had come straight from college to seminary, they're maybe in their late 20s, they become pastors. Some of them maybe had only been to one or two funerals, and then they're presiding over a dozen funerals a year. Not only that, families are asking advice, you know, how long do we, what sort of medical treatment do we give grandpa? Um, how intensive do, do we intervene? Uh, all of these things at the end of life became puzzles that they hadn't really thought through. And um, through the course of things, 
in discussions with these pastors, we ended up having a number of colloquies with um, pastors who have wrestled with this. We had a sense that the whole place of death and mortality had kind of eclipsed Christian discipleship. And it used to be a really important part of Christian discipleship. I mean, Jonathan Edwards would think daily of his death and, you know, it's in Benedict's rule that the monks would think daily of their death. And it's, it was actually part of discipleship, whether you are young or old, but this whole aspect of our faith had been eclipsed. So in the book, The End of the Christian Life, I ended up writing a book that isn't just about end of life. It's not, this is the book you should read when the doctor says you have six months left. Hmm. I mean, it could be a good book for that, <laughs> but this is a book for what it means to reclaim our place as mortals before the everlasting God, whether we are young or old. Um, all of us need to come to terms with that. And there are so many forces in our culture that um, are kind of implicitly telling us death is something that just happens to other people. Um, death is, you know, you're in control of your world. Death is something that you can worry about 50 years from now. Um, but that's, that's actually leading us to live our daily lives in a way that's actually not really truly before God. So you've actually mentioned a lot of things I want to follow up with. And I think the idea of, um, remembering or thinking about our death daily is one, but before we get there, I just want to, I, I forgot about this a little bit, actually. I have read your book on the Lord's Supper and I just want to say it's a, it's a great book. And I just, this kind of popped in my head is that, um, when I first read it, I did not like the idea that you brought up as much about memory and remembering the past and the Old Testament and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Not like I hated it. For whatever reason, I didn't like it. And then I recently read Grant McCaskill's book on, on union with Christ and the idea of memory. And it totally clicked. And now it's mm -hmm. like, I need to reread that again because I read it more like an ignorance, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And now that I have better knowledge and better thinking, I want to go back and, uh, and read that again because I think the idea of memory information is helpful. Hmm. And I mean, the Eucharist is good because it's the uh, medicine of immortality, kind of on, on topic. Mm -hmm. But uh, mm -hmm. now I, I want to go back to the actual topic at hand. Sorry. Uh -huh. That was no, a total right. aside just as we're talking. But um, maybe in the show notes, I can list uh, your book titles for people because I've really benefited. I haven't read your stuff on, on Union with Christ. I know you have two books, but I want to. Um, one of them is a bit too expensive right now, but the other one is oh, yeah. manageable. Cool. Um, One of them about a dollar a page, so yeah, dollar a page, yeah, which is it's good, but um, also <laughs> that's what, that's what Oxford University Press will do for you. <laughs> yes, um, you mentioned Jonathan Edwards, um, I think Benedict's Rule, yeah. and I think this is even uh, I think it's part of Stoicism if, if memory serves, but the idea of remembering your death. Now that sounds, I guess, literally morbid, and. Uh, I think most of us don't want to consider death. Like it's not pleasant unless you have to, um, you know, like I in high school, I remember I had some friends who passed away and it was just kind of like a bit of a shock. I remember in seminary, I had to go to a funeral, um, which wasn't a bad thing, but it's just, it kind of is introducing me, but these are newer concepts for me. And then as you get older, um, death becomes a bit more real, but still we kind of hide it away. So, our culture, I think, tends to want to evade death, but you're, sounds like you're commending remembering death daily. 
why? Yeah, I think our culture has a complex relationship with death that you're kind of hinting at. Um, on the one hand, we have death shot at us all the time through news headlines and through, you know, the way that certain deaths are politicized and um, through media and movies and and so forth. But in, on an implicit level, for a lot of us that can actually reinforce this sense that, oh, when a death happens, the world is really upset about it. Um, you know, this is an astonishing thing that death happens. I mean, the mortality rate is, you know, still hovering right around 100%. <laughs> death happens every day. <laughs> um, but when it's it's the ordinary experience of dying that a lot of us have become isolated from um and and it's that in that embodied ordinary experience where i think a lot of the implications are for our faith so for example as after i was diagnosed with cancer going through cancer treatment i really started to think about with my kids how can I expose them to death in a way that's age appropriate? I mean, I'm really not interested at all in being morbid. I mean, I've never, you know, liked horror movies or anything like that. Um, and I don't want that for them. But I found that among my different communities at the seminary, different friends that I have, really the only place where I could even introduce my kids to people who were dying was the church, the congregation, um, where they could actually get to know people whose bodies are in the process of visibly failing. And so I hadn't really seen that as an opportunity before. I mean, of course they would, you know, Older people often love kids and so would, you know, wave to them during a coffee hour at the church, but we hadn't really intentionally built relationships. But one of the things we started to do was to just very intentionally build relationships, start to visit older people in the nursing home with my kids, um, which is actually super easy because kids are so popular in nursing homes. Um, they're great visitors, but it's it also just exposes them, as well as me, as well as the, the parent, to um, not just someone in me, but someone who is mirroring what is happening and will happen to us. Um, as, you know, we would visit um, Walter, one of the people in the book, um, and he didn't have much family in the area, so we would just visit him frequently with my kids. And, you know, we could see over a period of months his physical decline. We could see how he would actually quite openly talk about death, how in his 90s, he was in his 90s, and so people would joke, oh, you know, only so many years to 100, and he would say, I don't want to live to be a hundred, you know, and it's not like he hated life, but there's this, our culture so glorifies youth. So 
sort su- suppresses the reality of death and dying that we actually miss out on a lot and some of what i try to do in the book is to show that this is actually a biblical theological journey that um it's not just exposing yourself to dying people simply for the experience of it but this is who the psalmist tells us we are. We, our lives, whether we live six years or 96 years, our lives are like a breath before God. And the book of Job, we often think of Job as an exception to the rule. But there's a sense in which the book of Job is something that will happen to all of us. Like all of us will lose fa- earthly family and fortune. Mm-hmm. Like... <laughs> that's that's our story whether we like it or not and so there is so much that we actually protect ourselves from realizing the fact that we need a deliverer we are in the pit and that's one of the images i work with a lot in the book um, the pit or Sheol, um, and we need the light of god um, and I kind of set up the pit and the temple where God's presence dwells, where heaven and earth come together as those are the true opposites, not so much just like biological death and biological life, but the presence of God or in a place of abandonment that seems far from the presence of God. So so you kind of had a couple, a couple things popped in my head. I think of, Paul talking about this this body of death that we bear. Mm, yeah, yeah. I also think about the in- incarnation um, when you're talking about Sheol and, and heaven uniting. And I know there's, there's some debate on the some of the specific aspects of it, but it strikes me as that Jesus takes a mortal body mm-hmm. and at the same time, he has an immortal life united to that mortal body. Something, kind of something really interesting happening there, and I'm not sure how to spell it out. Is this something that you touch on a little bit in your writings? I don't remember seeing it, but is there a connection to the incarnation? Yeah, there's definitely a connection to the incarnation. In a sense, God unites himself to our mortal dying flesh. And one of the ways in which I develop that in the end of the Christian life is through developing imagery from the book of Hebrews, which is Mm -hmm. really powerful because Hebrews talks about how, um, you know, Christ is our brother. Christ has gone before us. He is like knows, you know, knows our, knows us in all ways, but sin like us in all ways, except for sin. And so Christ in the way that Christ's death is pictured there is kind of like a pioneer like he tastes death first and so we are not the pioneer and so there's something about the fact that god takes on human suffering and human death in order to redeem it in order to heal it that is very powerful so it's it's quite significant you may remember in my lament book i actually have a whole chapter on divine impassibility um because it's quite important for me to say that like 
the suffering of Jesus matters, and it matters because it's embodied human suffering. Um, it's not just like divine suffering that I understand there's a certain way you can speak of God's suffering that may be analogical. Um, and, uh, but if, if one's speaking in, in strict terms, like God does something better than suffer in the divine being, God takes on the kind of suffering we can relate to, which is embodied suffering. And in a sense, it's similar with, with death. Like, um, God doesn't die in the divine being. What good would that do us? Like, then we end up with a big pity party for God. God takes on human death, and precisely in taking on human death, and even in, in a sense, Jesus entering into the darkest depths of Sheol, um, extinguishes its final power. Hmm. Well, you you drew on Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 2, I think it's verse 9 or 10. Jesus tasted death for everyone. Mm -hmm. And through this high priest, this apostolic and high priestly act, uh, he he makes us brothers with him. Mm -hmm. And one of the fascinating passages that you didn't reference it, but it's kind of in the background probably is I think verses 14 and 15, where... What, one thing that Jesus does is he releases us from the fear of death. And that fear is tied to the power of the devil, essentially, to hold us yeah. in fear. Yeah. And this is kind of the Christus Victor type of theme where the world around us, and we were talking about the culture around us, but there, there's something actually, I think, deeper probably that most of us, any human born, knows they're mortal at one point. And that is, a, it can be a fearful thing. But what you noted was, that God destroyed that sort of, or Christ destroyed that sort of fear of death, that sort of uh, Sheol reality, that moral reality by tasting it first as the pioneer for us. So can we just talk about that for a second? I mean, death anxiety is a thing. Yeah. Um, And it's not like, oh, you're a bad person because it's like part of being mortal. Yeah. And yet there's something enslaving about it. So we're all going to die anyways. How then does Christ free us from this fear of death because we're going to die. Like I'm not going to live forever in terms of this corporeal state of living. Yeah. I think that's a really important question. And I think that a key term that you use there is this enslavement. Um, So in Hebrews two verse 15, it talks about how, well, I'll just read um, verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So I think that, so it's in this, you know, solidarity with us, he's taken on um, human death and, is victory, like you said, over the devil. Um, but then a key phrase is, um, it's the victory is over slavery to the fear of death. So sometimes I think we have a danger in the Christian community of acting as if death doesn't really matter. Like the death isn't a wound. Um, I remember in 
my congregation, I was praying with a gentleman who had been married for over 50 years, and it was the anniversary of his wife's death, um, who had died a few years before. And he was just crying and was saying, I, I know I'm supposed to be thankful that she's in a better place, but I just want her here. And I don't think we need to feel, I mean, maybe that's not exactly the fear of death, but there's, we have euphemisms of talking about this that don't really come to terms with the fact that like death's, the victory over death, Paul says, um, you know, death is the final enemy, mm. <clears throat> but the victory is not completely accomplished yet. Like, the, the, the grounds of it have been accomplished in, in Jesus Christ, but we are not yet fully reaping that benefit. People still die and often in horrific ways. Um, um, and yet I think that the, some of the power of this Hebrews passage is that um, many of us do live in slavery to the fear of death. In other words, like death is the master and the fear of death is the master. Death is on the throne in terms of the, the fear of death. So we can be tempted to live self-protected lives and lives that don't really love God and love neighbor because we're just going to keep our resources to ourselves mm. and not realize that our lives are short. We are dying and to love God and others sacrificially like to be able to love God and others sacrificially is a freedom that is a kind of freedom from slavery to the fear of death so I think I think it's okay to fear death to to some extent but it it's not our it shouldn't be our driving fear and right. it shouldn't it's it's not the fear of death should not be on the throne um, so you know, there's a number of kind of paradoxes I try to hold together in the book, but one of them is that death is both an enemy, um, which will be, you know, finally conquered, um, and and it's also something the pro the dying process is something that God can use as an instrument um, mm. as as well, and so yeah. Well, I, you know, it's interesting. So I, someone, a pastor friend of mine recently sent me a quote on, on the idea of death. And I, I can't remember the context, but someone was asking person, um, you know, is it okay to kind of, are, are, you, are you over your grief or is it over, are you over your anger at someone's death? And the response was essentially no, and I never, never will be. And um, there's something, I mean, death is the last enemy. It's not, not our friend. It's not something you should, in my view, be okay with. I think it's okay to grieve and to, annoyed with it forever in a sense mm -hmm. but to kind of balance it as with, with what you said that the enslaving fear is what you're trying to avoid yeah, yeah and then the third thing i guess i should note is that it can be a training piece for us mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um remembering your death kind of we mentioned that at least i also think hebrews talks about how christ was made perfect through suffering yeah and recently of this is going to probably feel way out of the <laughs> out of this, but I, I read, um, reading a Isaac of Nineveh this week, I guess, last week. I don't know when it was recently. And he made something that was really help a point that was really helpful for me. 
But essentially, when we're suffering, when something's happening in our lives like this, uh, this is God putting us into a trial for our good. It's, mm. it's good. Mm-hmm. Not, the, not necessarily all the bad things that happen, but the trial itself. And I don't know why. I mean, maybe that's so obvious to say out loud, but just the way that he communicated it to me, this you know monk from like 1,300 years ago, it was really freeing because it allowed me to think through the kind of suffering that I go through or the kind of angst that I go through as being for my ultimate good, in a sense, uh, training, mm-hmm. perfection. Mm-hmm. So I, think, I guess there's a bunch of things you can kind of hold, hold together here. I wanted to kind of transition in, in also, unless you wanted to follow up, but to maybe ask you this, like... It seems to me that our culture has this idea of overcoming, this idea of, you know, hashtag winning was Charlie Sheen's kind of silly thing from a number of years ago. Uh, recently, uh, not to be political, but the president, you know, so-called conquered coronavirus over three days. And there's kind of this narrative of, of victory. And it kind of, in my mind, parallels a little bit of kind of health, wealth, and prosperity teaching that has this cognate in religion. Um, but the scripture is pretty clear that weakness, God shows weakness and uh, his glory in our weakness and that death is not the final end. And there's this power through this kind of weakness that we have. Like, can you kind of pull those things together? The world tells us victory is right. Winning is right. Overcoming the virus and powerful in three days is right. And yet scripture shows us that God's glory comes through the weakness of the cross what Mm -hmm. can you kind of speak to these two realities and how we should think through these big picture things like weakness versus victory? Yeah. It's something that I found as I was working on the book is much more pervasive than I had realized. It's what I call a kind of a soft prosperity gospel. Mm -hmm. It's not people who are saying or expecting, um, Oh, if I give my, offering this week, I'm going to become a millionaire or, you know, something connected to televangelists. But there's a very wide spread Christian expectation. And this bears out through polls that the Pew Center has done and so forth, that if you're a Christian, you're basically going to be financially secure and healthy. And if you're not, um, you're going to bounce back like really quick because God's going to heal. So I give an example in the book of a middle school um, summer camp where they had, they were trying to cultivate empathy among the middle schoolers for people with disabilities. And so like in one cabin, everybody had to spend a couple hours to do doing their activities like blindfolded or things like that. And one of the girls pulls off the blindfold and um, says, you know, this, this would never happen to me. If I got blind, if I lost my sight, God would just heal. God would just heal me. Like this doesn't apply to me. This basically doesn't apply to Christians. And, Assumptions like that are usually just very subtle. Um, And so, I mean, that particular circumstance wasn't as subtle, but I think she was showing some of the broader assumptions Mm. she had just absorbed in her Christian subculture. Now, on the one hand, I think there is a biblical 
there is a sort of what you might call general biblical truth in kind of wisdom teaching in the Bible that you reap what you sow. Right. So, um, you know, that's in the Psalms, that's in the Proverbs. Um, it's really, you can find aspects of that um, in various parts of the biblical canon. Um, so th the idea is not, you know, throw away precaution, um, act as if you are invincible just so that you can be weak or something like that. Um, um, there, there is that sort of general biblical um, truth. But what we generally want to do is to make that into a transaction where, okay, if I try to live basically a good life before God, then what God owes me is to live a middle-class lifestyle until I'm 85 or 90 and see my grandkids and things like that. Um, and sometimes when, you know, people my age, like in my late thirties go into the hospital, like we pray for them and we should pray for them. But sometimes the prayers almost seemed like, let him come back to the middle-class lifestyle and give him 45 more years because that's what you've promised him. And God never promises us that. Um, it's the, it's the retrospective <laughs> thinking of reaping and sowing where um, we think about what God owes us and what we deserve for our faith or our Christian life that goes really off track. And then as you were saying, we have the astonishing revelation in Jesus Christ that through the cross, his power is made perfect in weakness. Now I think the ways in which that weakness is manifest often kind of take care of themselves in terms of it's not that Paul is seeking out suffering for its own sake when he talks that way in first Corinthians one. Um, and, and really it's the whole book of actually I'm thinking of theology of the cross in first Corinthians one, but in, in many ways, the book of second Corinthians is all about suffering mm -hmm. and um, ties in with these themes. And a lot of his imagery in second Corinthians actually just have to do with the crumbling of our mortal body. Mm. Um, and that God actually works in and through that. So we tend to think it's better if the body is always healthy and is going to live long and so forth. And on the one hand, we need to steward our bodies for God and and have a care for our bodies. But in the economy of God, I mean, God works just as much through a sick person as through a healthy person. And that person isn't just the object of pity, but is a minister of the gospel. So, mm. you know, there, there are just a lot of implications, I think, for the ways in which in this fallen world, God has actually chosen to work through suffering in the midst of suffering. And so um, even if there is wisdom in um, 
seeking to, you know, make good decisions with your life rather than just foolish decisions, you know, in that sort of wisdom literature of the Bible where there's the, the foolish path and the wise path. Yeah, try to live on the foolish path, but expect bad things to happen too. <laughs> like, you know, expect trials. Um, mm. they, will, they will come. And this isn't like the Christian life gone awry. This is how the crucified and risen Lord bears witness to the kingdom of God in this fallen world. That's a, well, there's a lot there to kind of think through. Um, I had, I had a lot of really specific thoughts and at the end there. They kind of all peered out, which is kind of funny in a conversation, but we, we do care on this body of death. We do experience this kind of suffering in our society. I guess here's the, here's the one thing that I remember now is, is that, it's almost like we have a sense of shame when we're, we're sick. Like mm-hmm. you, you do see it right now during this kind of coronavirus time where there's almost like, Oh, someone got it. They must've done something wrong or, mm-hmm. you know, they were too close to whatever it is. There, there's a sense of shame when in reality, it's, it's very uncontrolled. Well, I mean, nobody knows exactly how to control this thing. And I think you, you do see it sometimes in, in disabilities as well. And even in admitting weaknesses in, in church, like confessing sin to one another, it's very easy to say, well, I got angry this week or I felt pride, but it's hard to say, well, I, I tried cocaine on the weekend. <laughs> like it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, it's like, and yet uh, we should be among all people, the most ready and open to be sort of admitting our weaknesses. Mm-hmm. We have David's uh, in, in scripture that show us that God works through in some sense, the worst of all people, not that David is the worst mm-hmm. of all people exactly, but he did many things that we would, rightly call horrendous yeah horrendous yeah um and paul even kind of views himself that way john's gospel i think is very clear the glory that jesus reveals is at the cross yeah broken when he is lifted up yeah Mm -hmm. he's pierced with a spear and water comes out so uh, as a kind of well are you you were looking at something like a bible verse where you did you want to read something no, I was just, you were talking some about Second Corinthians, so I was just um, okay. flipping God, through, but go ahead. The God of all comfort. and Well, um, as a kind of follow-up here, and as we kind of are, are, are moving to the end of this conversation, um, I kind of want to sit, talk about then, I think a lot of people hear this. Um, in one sense, it hits us because we all kind of avoid death. We know that death is real. I think a little bit of your background makes us, even myself, kind of go, oh, I'm going to take this seriously. Because I can, I have two two children. I can imagine myself in your situation. It's it's harder to ignore, mm-hmm. and um, for me, even just reading Isaac of Nineveh recently to repeat again, just just how he is so okay with getting rid of possessions, suffering, how he views it as as kind of a good thing. It's so alien to my middle class Canadian nicety mindset. Um, mm-hmm. What? Maybe let's, let's let's get really practical first before we get to books. Just really practical question: How do we how do we practice remembering death, and how do we begin to practice avoiding that slavery? I know the gospel is is the thing that objectively does it, but what do we do practically? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that there's a number of different levels. The in in worship, in weekly worship, there are all sorts of opportunities. Um, I mean, related to baptism and um, 
the Lord's Supper, for example, in, in many ways, baptism is a preparation, not just an initiation into the Christian life, but also a preparation for death. When we, um, in our dying and rising with Christ in our lives, we are preparing for a time when in facing death, whether we expect it or not, we have no one to trust in other than the Lord who gives us life, where we offer our body as a living sacrifice in this life to God. And if we have hope beyond the grave, it's solely because of this same God, in a sense, this offering of our body and our lives um, to God. And, you know, in the Lord's Supper, um, this is both about sharing in fellowship with Christ, proclaiming his death, um, and it's about longing for the feast to come, um, crying out, come Lord Jesus, where that's the heartbeat of our life. And... Um, until then, we live in a world where death has this, this uh, uh, a power that is real. It's not final. It won't have the final word, but it, it, is, it is real. That's why we lament and also cry out and hope, come Lord Jesus. And I think in um, the preaching of the gospel, um, often... <laughs> If, if this is a preaching that comes from a place of union with Christ, it's going to, it's going to have us encounter our deaths. Um, there's two other things that I would say. One is just the renewal of the funeral, and especially the funeral as a congregational service. I think funerals really used to be services for the whole congregation, just as baptisms were services for the whole congregation. Everyone remembers the meaning of baptism when there's a baptism. Um, and a funeral service well done is not just like stories about the person who is departed and about their hobbies and things, but is a celebration of the person's union with the death and resurrection of Christ and of that hope. And in a sense, um, the deceased body at the funeral is a reminder that all of us will be there. Like it's, it's um, just as we see ourselves in the baptized person, we see ourselves in, in the coffin. Now that may sound morbid and it's morbid if you put on creaky, creepy music and, you know, so forth, but it's actually just real. Like, um, and uh, being aware of that reality actually tends to um, clarify our loves, clarify, like, how am I spending my time? Am I actually, like, loving God, loving my family, loving those in need? Or am I just wasting away my time, you know, keeping up with certain political news that I can't have any much impact on anyway, or things like that. Like, um, 
um, it does call our life into question. Um, but I guess my, my uh, one more thing is just, it's not, it's just to actually get to know people who know that they are dying. Like they have a lot to give and often they're quite lonely, um, but they have so much to give. And even if, even if they're in a hard place, even if they're struggling, you know, one of the elderly gentlemen who my kids and I got to know, he was struggling because he had not asked forgiveness from a family member and that family member had passed away. Mm. And, you know, I didn't have all the answers, but it's, it also calls my life into question in some powerful ways. Like, am I reconciling with those around me and, and so forth. Um, so, um, I think those are ways to keep it real and not just an abstraction. Um, um, because we have enough abstractions about death in the sense of like, we have enough movies and headlines and more than enough stuff like that. Um, it can almost become almost like a kind of pornography or something where we're not encountering the real thing. Um, but it's this, you know, we get the energy of, you know, something around death by, reading a lot about it in the news or in, in entertainment. Um, but the slower, less glamorous encounter with people who are dying, who are grieving and so forth, that's I think where our big learning curve is, especially when it comes to um, discipleship. And I think when we do that, we'll find that we have so many companions in scripture. Um, of course, Christ has gone before us, but, uh, and and that's central. I'm not going to say, but after that, but um, the um, really so many places in scripture are, if you look at the people involved, they are dealing with their mortality and dealing with death in a very real way. And I think we're just, we're missing out on so much hope and so much joy um, because when we don't remind ourselves in a real way that we're dying, we tend to, you know, invest our lives in things that don't really matter. And really, we don't have much hope for the resurrection because we don't really think we need a deliverer in our day-to-day -day lives. Mm. Sorry, I was getting in kind of a homiletic mode there, but no, I mean, <laughs> preach away. It's uh, currently it's an audience of one, but I guess once it gets yeah. released, it's an audience of more. Um, that's helpful. Um, it's almost as if the sacraments are important for the Christian life in the way that you mentioned it. It's a bit of a joke because I know they are. <laughs> uh <-huh>. Yeah. <laughs> um, as we close, I just want to note maybe talk about your books and maybe other books we can look into. I know that the scriptures is important. Um, You've written Rejoice and Lament, a book that I read a number of years ago. Um, let's see if I wrote a... Oh, apparently I got in the spring of 2015. Okay, yeah. Um, I've read your book on communion, which I'm sure... I don't remember offhand, but it might talk about the memory and memory of death and all that kind of things, because obviously Jesus died, and that's what, partly mm -hmm. what we're remembering. Your new book, which I haven't read yet, is The End of the Christian Life. Mm -hmm. um, who's it published by? Brazos Press. Brazos Press. Um, that it's out already, correct? 
Yep. And I think I'm getting a review copy, so I, I love to review it. I mean, especially after this conversation, but I don't have it yet. Um, so those are the books. Um, you've written on Union with Christ. You have two books on that, which I'm sure give maybe a, a broader background to the gospel centrality of all of this. Uh, is there anything else that you've written that I'm forgetting that maybe would be helpful to note? Oh, you've noted a lot of stuff. Okay. More than enough, so. <laughs> what about other people? Are there three, four, five books that just, obviously you've done a bit of research, I'm sure, that yeah. just kind of come to mind as, man, these are helpful books. Um, around this, these sorts of Yeah, topics. around the topic of, of death. Yeah. Yeah, yeah one of, uh, one book that I really love is by a friend of mine, um, Matthew Levering, who's a mm. Roman Catholic theologian um, called Dying and the Virtues. And, um, you know, there's certain parts of it that I don't, agree um just being a protestant myself but it's really so articulately done and he goes into scripture and the broader christian tradition about how the process itself of dying is the opportunity for growing in the christian life um particularly um, as it relates to certain virtues and Christian virtues. And I think that death, the dying process has become such a medical process for many of us that we just forget this whole Ars Morandi, this whole art of dying tradition. And it's, his, his book is just a superb one along that line. Um, another, if you want a, a really excellent book just to explain exactly how dying has become a medical process and some of the limits of that. And let me just say, I am not anti-medicine at all. Mm. Like I wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for chemotherapy right now. Um, but it's often doctors who are seeing that when patients just say yes again and again and again to extreme measures or to, you know, anything that it, it, it's just not good for the patients and for their families. But um, the book is um, um, called Being Mortal um, by um, Atul Gawande. Um, he's not a Christian himself, but he actually really admires the Christian tradition and the Ars Moriandi tradition. Um, and the... <laughs> It's just a pretty astonishing portrait of how medicine has, in the last hundred years, has taken on a totally different role where it used to be the pastor at the bedside and now it's the doctor at the bedside. Mm -hmm. And what that means for how we view our lives even long before we're at the, in, in, in the bed before death is, is big, is really big. Um, and I guess some of the some of the people who I'd actually recommend on this line are I, I do have a podcast, just a six episode mm. one called The End of the Christian Life. And I interviewed some of my favorite authors there. So David Gibson, who has a superb book on Ecclesiastes, mm. um, Thomas Lynch, who's a funeral director, very theologically articulate funeral director, um, who has a book called The Undertaking. Hmm. Um, and yeah, there's, so there's a, if people look up that podcast, uh, 
Okay. They can so, um, see some of the authors that I think that I kind of discovered in the process. And um, there's some really rich material out there. Um, so it's called the end of the Christian life podcast. Is that yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll try to Google it and maybe put it in the show notes if possible too. Todd, I was wonderful to talk to you. I've, I've known about you for a while, obviously through your writings. I'm not sure if I've ever heard you speak before. I don't think so, but it was a pleasure to kind of get to know you, to ask you questions and to learn from you. So thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Wyatt. And thanks for your good questions. And I just love your curiosity and inquisitiveness and that you've been reading. Um, things yeah from a range of sources across the tradition so yeah